is in fact by way of a tribute to the Indian philosopher Krishnamurti. And as you may well know, on February the 17th in Ojai, Southern California, Krishnamurti died. And in this talk with you this evening, I would like to speak about Krishnamurti, and if I may too, be his influence on my life and on the life of a number of friends. And before beginning with this uh, talk this evening, I would just like to refer to him and to his early uh, background and just uh, proceed in, um, in terms of with regard to the general flow, as I understand it, of his life. And also, I was very fortunate enough to receive an, an article published in an Indian um, magazine by a person who was very uh, close to uh, Krishnamurti, a man named Asit Chandmai, and who was with K, as he is frequently referred to, in the period of time just before his death and the very last days of his life. And he has written quite a moving and touching account of the last period of this rather rare and, and unusual man. The story of um, Krishnamurti, um, of course, dates back to the time of his birth. He was born May 11, 1895. And he was born in an area, some, in a village, some 150 miles north of Madras, which rests on the southern east coast of India. His father, it seems, was a, a rent collector. His mother died when Krishnamurti was quite young, and they were from a Telugu-speaking uh, family. And the children and the father moved to Adya, which has been, and as far as I know, continues to be the uh, international headquarters for the Theosophical Society. And it seems that one day, when Krishnamurti was about 11 years of age, he was sitting on the beach with his brother and an Englishman who was a member of the Theosophical Society and regarded as being something of a, a psychic was walking along the beach and saw Jidu, that's the Krishnamurti's first name, and something registered or touched in this man Charles Ledbetter and he went to see the president of the Theosophist, Theosophist, Mrs. Annie Besson, and he said to her, in very clear and matter-of-fact language, I have found the next Buddha. I have found Maitreya, the next world leader. And from that time, young 
Krishnamurti came very directly under the influence of Mrs. Besant, of the Theosophists, and rather was, if I may say, schooled in the training both of uh, the approach of the Theosophists and also with in the best of uh, Western education, both uh, uh, in England and France, I understand. And during this period of time, it was a period of time in Krishnamurti's life, very young, into his teens and into his twenties, in which he was very much being schooled to be the world leader and the order of the star was established around him with some dozen people, I think only one or two of them um, are still alive, who were to be, as it were, um, disciples of the world leader. And Krishnamurti was having, during his twenties and during the 1920s, it seems certain growing misgivings about this role which had been chosen for him and of course which, one, which, he, which he himself had subscribed to. And then there came about in, um, on August the 3rd, 1929, perhaps one of his most famous of all public talks that he, that he gave. And and it was at the Star Camp at Omen in Holland. And there were some 3,000 star members, the Order of the Star, the various members who were present at, at that. And quite straightforwardly, and again in his in that directness of speech and communication, with, which he's so well known and respected, he promptly dissolved the Order. And he gave, during this uh, talk, something which, in a way, I would say, in my readings and exposure, um, in years of uh, listening to him, both in India and uh, in England, in the privilege I had of meeting personally with him three or four times, that he spoke at that time on August the 3rd, 1929, and the essence of what he said on that day remained throughout all the years, right until the very last talk that he gave in um, Madras uh, in January. There was a kind of uncompromising eloquence and communication which never wavered throughout the, all the various themes and topics which he discussed. And I just, if I may, just like to read to you the essence of that talk that he gave, that first major talk. And he began with words which, uh, for those of us who have much love and affection for his teachings, something which runs so true and deep. I maintain that truth is a pathless land and you cannot approach it by any path whatsoever, by any religion, by any sect. I do not want to belong 
to any organization of a spiritual kind. If an organization be created for this purpose, it becomes a crutch, a weakness, a bondage, and must cripple the individual and prevent him from growing, from establishing his uniqueness, which lies in his discovery for himself of that absolute unconditioned truth. I desire those who seek to understand me to be free, not to follow me, not to make out of me a cage. You are all depending for your spirituality on someone else. No man from outside can make you free. You have been accustomed to being told how far you have advanced, what your spiritual status is. How childish. But who but yourself can tell you if you are incorruptible? For two years I have been thinking about this slowly, carefully, patiently, and I have now decided to disband the order as I happen to be its head. <laughs> you can form other organizations and expect someone else. With that I am not concerned nor with creating new cages, new decorations for those cages. My only concern is to set men absolutely, unconditionally free. During these years of, of Krishnamurti, he visited and in this period of time he visited Ojai and he went to one end of the valley and quite it seems fell in love with the place with the orange grove there, the climate, the, the beauty of the, the countryside and spent whenever he could time and place and opportunity to be there and of course as the time went by the Ojai school became established just as in the later years, the school at Brockwood Park in England, at uh, Rishi Valley in India, and other areas. But all of this was a kind of later development in the teachings and in the message of Krishnamurti. And when one thinks of, of Krishnamurti, it seems to me that there are a number of aspects of the teachings which took place. And one, of course, is this uncompromising message about being free and with that certain kinds of themes which would take place. One being the necessity to question into authority and authority figures. And that certainly for a number of us is, was and continues to be very much a, a stimulation for us. And if I may say, when I was uh, in my early twenties and had uh, uh, moved out of the uh, work and um, living in England, and as was common in those days, and, and still is for fewer people these days, to make the overland trip out of Europe and through Turkey, through at that time, Iran and Afghanistan, Pakistan, into India, the overland run. And I remember when I made that journey some 20 years ago, and we've, be, we would be exposed to various 
readings and what people were into. And the name of Krishnamurti first began to emerge for me as it did for other people at that time. And there's something about that spirit of spiritual inquiry and investigation and not taking things for granted in any way which began to, to touch us. And we, I went from uh, Southeast Asia down to uh, Australia and I was get some work to get some uh, money and I was doing my old work which was um, being a newspaper reporter and was working at that time for the ABC uh, which is the National Radio of Australia and in the evenings, a couple of evenings a week, a small handful of us would gather in the flat of a, of a friend in Sydney, as people have done for many years all over the world, and we'd put on a tape of K and just sit there very quietly and listen, and sometimes he would be browbeating his audience as he was always prone to doing. And that never changed right until the very last talk. And and he was always requesting those who were there to listen. And sometimes you, you, you could f feel from him such a sense of uh, um, urgency, almost bordering on desperation. In, Please listen for God's sake. <laughs> and, and people would, in, you know, who would be nodding off and minds would be wandering. <laughs> would feel morally obliged you know, for the sake of the peace of mind of this greying, balding old man to, to sustain the listening. <laughs> and this energy and, and passion and uh, vitality of it would even come through in, in, the, uh, in the recorder, in the, in the cassettes. And I remember once in there in Australia, Australia, um, listening, and the audience was coughing a great deal and spluttering and, and so forth. And I asked one of the people who was lending ear, why, you know, why was all this coughing going on in the background? And they said that this particular talk had been recorded in uh, India, and People had so much many colds and coughs, and there was so much tuberculosis and illness that uh, his talks brought all manner of manner of people and sickness, as it were, was be, and suffering and sadness was, as it were, almost being communicated while the very man was was uh, speaking. And some of us and some of yourselves may also in giving reflection to the, Im the significance, the import that this particular human being has made in one's life, may also just bring to mind just times and ways and things that he has communicated and stated you know, in, in, in a way which never allowed for anything else but this being the way it is. Um, has, of course, some may consider its limitations, but it also has its forthrightness and its directness. And if I may, I would just like to 
put on a, uh, a, in one of the cassettes, one of the countless hundreds of cassettes of his. The recording is uh, not so uh, satisfactory, but I'll play for you to uh, lend an ear. And also we should um, go together and investigate this whole question of death. not just for the old people like us, but also for everyone in the world, young, old, or middle-aged, or death is one of the most extraordinary things that happens in life, right? What do you think of it? What is your instinct, instinctual response to the world and to the fact? What is death? Death is an ending, right? Please follow this carefully. Ending. Ending voluntarily. You can't argue with death. You can't say, please, give me another week. You can't discuss. It's there. Finished. So, can you voluntarily end your attachment? which is death. I wonder, you understand, ending is something like death. I wonder. The ending of a particular habit, not struggle, fight, wrangle, ending. If you take smoke, if you smoke, if you take drugs, if you drink, that's what's going to happen when you Pop off. <laughs> so can we voluntarily end? You understand your experience. Your opinions, your attitudes, your beliefs, your gods end. We are afraid to end, right? To end anything voluntarily. Or if you say, then, what is there if I end? That is then, you are looking for a reward. You consider then ending as a punishment. So, the ending being uh, considered as pain, then you naturally demand a reward. If I give up, then what? You don't ask that of death. So, can you end 
and see in that very ending there is beginning of something new. You understand? That his eyes, one, is ends attachment. And in a way that expresses the both the, the tone and the theme of observation and inquiry and looking into things as they are. And so the, the emotional themes of fear, sorrow and joy are themes which arise frequently in the teachings of Krishnamurti. The themes too of compassion and love of awareness, of a, a true choiceless awareness which is free from the limitations and the inconsistencies of form and structure. And no matter where he was or who he was talking to, and as a friend of mine once said, whether he was speaking to uh, six-year-olds in a school or to Nobel Prize winners, he talked to them all in the same way. Uh, this uh, clarity and precision, and that was certainly a <coughs> apparent in my uh, visits to the school, particularly Prockwood School. And I recall, in talking now about Kay, <coughs> that when I was a monk, something which, of course, he would never, ever condone, <laughs> that I had gone into a period, this is in the early 70s, into a period of uh, a solitude on a small island um, off in the Gulf of Siam. And I took with me my basic requisites, of course as a monk we were allowed to eight requisites, and a small little book of Krishnamurti's, not easily attainable these days, called Meditations 69. And they were the essence of some um, talks with some notes with regard to the beauty of the countryside. It probably, this little booklet probably made about 20 pages. And from time to time in my meditations through the best part of that year, I would just read a paragraph or a few, few sentences and found it, as many of us do with our uh, readings and reflections, quite touching and quite quite nourishing, you know, and there's that movement in life towards the integration and understanding of one's being and what that means in the whole field of existence. And a very distinct reminder again of it this, this evening before coming down to talk with you, there was um, just a, one of those delightful uh, sunsets which are a real feature here of New England. And just looking across there, as I and a number of you have done many, many times in, in, in the evening around this time, and there's that, the closing of the day and that strip of red of the sun right across the horizon, just above the tree line, and everything is dissolving and passing from the old day coming to its end and the new day beginning to emerge. And... Krishnamurti's teachings, and particularly the, the commentaries on living, are this 
this integration once again of daily life and the, the marvelousness and the, the beauties which are around us day in and day out with all the intricacies of living and being and exper experiencing. And in one of the um, uh, talks that he gave in Sarnen in Switzerland where he spoke for many years, he says, the art of listening, the art of seeing, the art of learning give extraordinary clarity and therefore that clarity can communicate verbally. There is the skill in action, but if there is no clarity, it breeds self-importance. Whether that self-importance is identified with a group or with oneself or with a nation. And that self-importance denies clarity, naturally. So skill, clarity and compassion cannot, and you cannot have clarity without the compassion. It is very important to understand this because when you listen to all this seriously with attention and therefore sharing together in our thinking logically, when you have this compassion, clarity and skill, then you become the teacher because then you have the teaching, not mine, the teaching. And so it becomes tremendously important for a person who listens. But this clarity is denied with, when there is any form of fear. And most human beings have a great deal of fear, which denies compassion. Fear in any form, both physiologically as well as psychologically, distorts the clarity. And therefore, a person who is afraid in any form has no compassion. And is this kind of language of Krishnamurti's, which though there's a certain absolutism about it. it. I feel that the motive of the mind was to, in a way, force us, make us stop, make us look, make us look at the relationship of, in this case, of, of fear and compassion and how the discovery of one is uh, um, limited and held up by the other, by the fear. And as I mentioned to you, with with um, Krishnamurti. In England, at Brockwood Park School, I was asked very kindly, it was arranged through friends who have done um, retreats with me and who have been teachers at the Brockwood School, I was asked by them to come to have lunch one day with Krishnamurti. And he and I were talking things of the past and of the present and uh, of life in uh, general. And one of the things which he said which quite touched me, he said that when he was, in his own words, he said, when I was a young man like you, um, he said, I went back to India after, after many years. And he said, and then he said to me, you know, he said, you've been to India, haven't you? He said, you've been many times. He said, what, what do you think about India? What's your perceptions of India? And I rather hesitated to say anything. He said, say anything you like. <laughs> I'm not an Indian, you know. <laughs> and uh, 
And I said, well, it fills me and touches me with sadness when I go, when I see the suffering and the poverty and the social injustice there. And yet there are other elements and factors which I deeply recognize and appreciate, but that touches me. And he said, he had been away from India for many years in the West, um, teaching all, all over Europe, uh, England, South America. And he said he went back and he said what he saw, he felt so sad by what he saw, he said, and these were his words, he said he had to go to bed for a week. You know, the, the, the degree of being touched you know, in his early, early years by the human condition brought about these, these responses. And of course it's well known, those of you who know the Krishnamurti's notebooks and his, his diary recordings, tremendous pains, physical pains, pains in the brain cells which he would undergo from time to time for years and years, I mean, quite excruciating pains. And I noticed in, if I may say, in my contact and conversations with him, there's a kind of this firmness and directness which is there. Then underneath it, there's a, um, um, a monumental softness, a monumental sense of goodness and sensitivity. And it keeps coming across in the way that when I raise my eyebrows or show a doubt or whatever in something that he said as we talked, he'd reach across and touch, hold my hand and say, don't worry, sir, don't worry. <laughs> And, it, 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 and so there's this, and there's this kind of balance which takes place in, in this uncompromising anything you think otherwise and you're off the mark and, the, and the, this accompanying sensitivity and compassion which, which would go with it. And just more recently when I was um, um, in India I, I've, if I may say I've been to India what some uh, 15, 16 times now of, over the years. And I go to Budgaya, which a place which I have uh, great affection for, the place where the Buddha awakening came. And while there this year, and just before my arrival, there were some 200,000 Tibetans for this major initiation through the Dalai Lama called the Kala Chakra initiation. And one or two of the people on the retreat there said to me that they were going to uh, Bombay immediately afterwards to listen to Krishnamurti, as others of us have, have done over the years. And then in early uh, February I returned to, uh, to England and when I, the day that I arrived home, my uh, friend Gwenwin said, that she'd received a phone call from a friend of hers saying that Krishnamurti had left India early, had flown directly to Southern California and was seriously ill. So I immediately rang up um, Brockwood Park, the school, and uh, spoke there and they confirmed it. And then they said to me that he um, had become seriously ill, he was, had been losing uh, weight, 
He had gone for checkups, and I said, can you confirm that it's cancer, which I had heard, and they um, couldn't, but he'd been undergoing tests. And I, then I said I would ring back again, and I rang back, I think on the third time that I rang back, a few days later, and they said to me that he had died um, a few minutes after midnight on February the 17th. And those of us and friends in different parts of the world, I rang up um, the centre here and uh, told, told the staff if the people here hadn't heard and elsewhere, and just a sense that someone very unusual and perceptive and incisive had, had gone out of this world, a real light in this world, and whose devotion to humanity is rare and precious and unusual. And then a couple of weeks later, uh, Norman, who was uh, kindly assisting me on the retreat in Budgaya, returned from India with uh, this uh, article which was published in a, a city magazine called uh, Bombay. And I had heard from um, um, ringing up the uh, headmaster or the head teacher of the Dartington School in Totnes, where I live, that, that it was cancer, that there was a great deal of pain, that they um, had to resort to morphine at times because of the degree of pain. And Asit Jamal, in his uh, um, diary of the events, speaks from the time he was in Madras where everything began to the very last weeks where he went. And a friend who was at that final talk of his said that Krishnamurti at the very beginning of the talk, and this is his very last talk that he ever gave, said to the people who were listening, and I've sat in the same place where he gives the talk, and he said to the people, um, this is probably at the last talk that I am giving this evening. And there he is, you know, he's 90, 90, years of old, 90 years of age. And people listened, and it felt like they said that nobody quite believed it. You know, people didn't know he was sick, didn't know he was flying back, that he was cancelling his trip to Bombay, where he's spoken there virtually every year for the last 40 years. And at the very end, people began to stand up after he'd finished his talk, to, um, to, go, to go their different ways. And he said, he said to them, I just w want to remind you that this is my last talk, and I just want to, for us just to spend two or three quiet minutes together. Which they did, and then he got up, and very just quietly, just quietly left. And um, Asit Janmal said, and I just read it verbatim, he said, on the evening before the last talk on impulse, my 18-year-old uh, daughter, Clea, flew in from Singapore to see him. She hadn't seen him since she was 13 years of age. And so we, 
She sa he says, we go to see him in the morning. As we enter his room, he sits up in bed to talk to her. We talk about molecule biology and genetics and what will happen if the computer and these other technologies meet and combine and grow. What will happen to the human brain? And then he turns to her and says, you are going to Cambridge, Massachusetts. The professors there are very clever, Nobel Prize winners, all knowing a great deal. They know much more than you do. They are the authorities. They will say, we will teach, we will speak, and you will listen. What will you do? How will you, will, how will you study with men who dictate to you their findings and tell you to learn what they teach? With what quality of mind Will you meet such minds? And then, in the days afterwards, in which he continues to meet people before flying out of, out of Madras, <coughs> he goes and decides to um, take a walk. And during during this taking of the walk, though he is, it says here, though he is losing, he is weak and losing weight and has his meals in bed, he goes for a walk every evening. This is in Madras at Adjia. It's a very pleasant and beautiful spot in open country. And he goes for the same walk. He drives from the Saint Bihar to Adjia through the grounds of the Theosophical Society until he reaches Radha Bernia's house on the sea. He walks on the beach where he was discovered, found and adopted and initiated by the sea at Adya 75 years ago, when Halley's comet last entered the orbit which would carry it towards the sun. He, he starts, he's he's, has been talking about his death openly and freely. He tells me one evening, reports uh, Janmal, Dr. Deutsch will examine me a week after I reach California. If he says no more travel, no more talks, then it's all over. The body will die in four weeks. At 5.30 in the evening of the 10th of January, he goes for his last walk. He is to leave for California at midnight. As usual, he walks through the, the, the garden of Rada's house, through the ward gate, and carefully turns right to walk along the beach. There are boats and boys on the beach, darkened by the sea and the sky. As he strides along, the shore is silent. He holds Radha's hand as he walks, reaches out and touches Naninda Mehta on the shoulder, resting his hand on hers as he walks. He, st he then stands silent. This is rather touching. He stands silently looking at sea and sky. He is then completely alone. Then he turns and faces each direction and becomes the silence, the sea and the sky. He turns and starts walking towards Radha, Radha's house. His hair streams behind him like a comet's trail. We reach the house and he lets everyone pass through the gate. He stands aside. When he is alone, he once again faces each direction for a few moments. He sees the sand, the sea and the sky, and that is his farewell.
Krishnamurti then flew to to Ohio, and while and there in Ohio, he had the various various tests. And while with these various uh, tests which are taken, the doctors conclude that it's unpredictable just as to how many days that, that, that he has less. And so he says, take me a little further so that I can see the hills. This is done. He again asked to be left alone. There are groves of orange trees around him with their many oranges and the fragrance of their white blossoms. And once again, he bows his head slowly to the sky and to the hills. When the doctors um, diag diagnosed, they found that in the pancreas there was the beginning of a cancer. This then spread to the liver and then rapidly began to spread um, throughout the body. And during the, on the very last night, the writer, on the, very, on the previous day, to his, just a few hours before he, he died, he's in great pain. I hear his pain when I go to Pine Cottage um, in the morning. When there is respite from the pain, I go into his room and stand at the foot of his bed. He recognizes me and holds out his right hand and beckons me to come nearer. He holds my hand and his grip is strong. He asks, are you all right? Are you comfortable? Are you all right? I say yes. And he closes his eyes. I leave the room. That night I cannot sleep, though I am exhausted. At eleven, the atmosphere becomes frightening in my room. The fear persists. I want to be with someone. I force myself to sleep. An hour later, I am awoken. Krishnaji has just died. I am disorientated and for a moment do not know where I am and what she is saying. She, repeat, she repeats, Krishnaji has just died. And then after the cremation, at his request, he asks that the ashes are taken to remain some in America, some to England, and some taken to India. And I'm told some, the first place that they went to in India was to Budgaya. And so the writer in a silver urn which he had taken with him from India to Ojai took the ashes back and as he said on the sil in the silver urn on the plain the ashes were there for, for the distribution. And when they arrive in New Delhi, they go to a friend's house and he says, the urn is there in the garden surrounded by flowers. The lawn is white with hailstones after a fierce storm started as when the plane touched down. Just then, the sun also rises. Standing there, I feel the sacred. And then, then he remembers something that Krishnamurti had said to him years ago. If there are only five people who will listen and who will live, who have their faces turned to eternity, it will be sufficient.
And so at the age of 19 uh, and after a lifelong commitment to the service of others, to the speaking of truth, to speaking about a path to truth, that there is no path to truth, and that touching the hearts and minds of many of us in different ways. And though there may be aspects which we doubt and which we always encourage, may it be that too, that we'll see and look and observe and discover and that very spirit of human beings inquiry goes in a sustained way and so that the words which were shared and communicated with us are not forgotten are truly not forgotten in this world may all beings live in peace. May all beings live in harmony. May all beings live in peace and harmony. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.